thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast. We want to know your entrepreneur story and how we can offer the help that means business. Enter Entrepreneur SA with FNB on 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Demand your rights, but be aware of your responsibilities. Lead SA. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. 25 minutes to 10 o'clock. Let's say good morning to Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Hello, Chris. Good morning. I just have an email from you. It says, Dr. Christopher Smith. That sounds very serious. <laughs> well, I'm not too serious, as you know. I know so. that. I know Only that. Only when it matters. You know what? I, I have seen that too. Now, this first story I am so interested in. I want total silence in the studio as you explain the cause of chronic fatigue. I'm listening, Chris. Well, there's this entity called chronic fatigue syndrome, also known as ME, which has been around for a very long time. And symptoms include chronic fatigue, feeling absolutely shattered, really, really penetrating exhaustion that just knocks the stuffing out of people. They also get headaches, muscle aches and pains, and there can be some depression symptoms probably because of feeling like this. For a very long time, people have even doubted its existence. It's very real to the people who have it, but exactly what it is, what causes it, and how to get people better have remained a mystery. Now, people have tried various psychology tests they, they, and interventions, including things called CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, but they work variably well. In some people, they seem to work better than others. And then along comes a group of scientists in Norway, and this is really interesting. It's a study published in the journal PLOS One this week by Olaf Meller and his colleagues. They're at Hawkland University Hospital in Norway. And what they did, they had a patient who had the disease lymphoma, a kind of cancer of white blood cells. And there is a drug that was made quite a while ago now, which works. It's called rituximab. It works by destroying all of the white blood cells of a certain type in the body that cause lymphoma. So they gave this patient a dose of this rituximab and his lymphoma got better. But then the patient also said, wow, I've had chronic fatigue syndrome mm -hmm. for a really long time and I suddenly feel a million dollars. It's gone away. And they were intrigued by this because obviously when you have one observation, you never want to draw too much from it because it could be a one-off. So they then thought, well, this is so interesting. Let's do a trial. And what they're publishing in the journal PLOS One this week is the results of 30 patients who had this chronic fatigue syndrome. They randomized them, 15 people, into a, an intervention arm where they got rituximab and the other half got a placebo, but no one knew who was getting what. And the, patient, the patients had a long history of chronic fatigue. They were given the drug. They were then followed up. Nothing happened for the first two or three months to both groups of patients. Mm -hmm. But then there was a dramatic improvement in the people who had the rituximab. In fact, uh, out of the 15 patients who got it, 10 out of the 15 recovered. Okay. And in the placebo group, only one person got better. 
Now, obviously, these are small numbers still, and it's early days. They think, therefore, there must be some kind of inflammatory component to chronic fatigue syndrome, and the argument that they're putting forward is that because it takes three months before anything happens, despite the fact that the white blood cells disappear almost immediately, is that they leave behind antibodies and longer-lived cells that make antibodies in the body, and it's these antibodies that are persisting and causing the inflammation, and it's not till those antibodies themselves disappear later that you then begin to get resolution of some of the symptoms. Now, that may not be the reason, but the fact that it works, or has worked for two-thirds of the patients, is really interesting. So regardless of the mechanism, we need to look into this and find out why it is that taking away these B cells, these B lymphocytes, make the symptoms go away in some of these people, albeit transiently, because that may explain a lot more about what causes this condition in some people, and then we can begin to explore other ways to get rid of it. But a very interesting observation all the same, and I'm sure very heartening to people who may be in the group who suffer from this disorder. Sure, sure. And here's something else. Alzheimer's and antiviral for Alzheimer's, tell me about that. Well, there's a lady called Ruth Exaki who's a researcher at Manchester University in the UK. And when I was doing my PhD in virology in the mid to late 90s, I went to see her give a talk at a conference and I was intrigued because she was showing evidence that if you look in brains of people who have Alzheimer's disease, you can find evidence of herpes simplex virus, the virus that causes cold sores, in the brain tissue and in the very brain areas that are affected by Alzheimer's. Now, a lot of people were somewhat sceptical about whether this was true or not, but she has continued with this line of research for quite a long time now. And what she's presenting in, in a paper, again in the journal PLOS One this week, is some evidence that the virus does appear to be able to trigger the formation of these amyloid plaques, which are the hallmark neuropathologically of a brain affected by Alzheimer's. And the key question they wanted to ask was, well, what aspect of the virus's life, life cycle triggers the disease? Because 80% of the population carry herpes simplex virus, but normally in the part of the nervous system that supplies the skin. It doesn't normally involve the brain. But as people get older, you do increasingly find the virus in the brain, albeit in low levels. So this suggests maybe something is changing as we get older, and what is it about the virus that is enabling it to then start triggering Alzheimer's? So they teamed up with a researcher in the north of England, in Glasgow, called Chris Preston, who's got lots of mutant forms of herpes viruses, which have had certain genes removed, which interrupt different parts of the virus's life, ci life cycle. So they could then ask, well, if we infect cells with these different viruses, which stop growing at certain phases of their life cycle, and we look to see whether or not they then develop some of these beta amyloid plaques, for example, can we work out what aspect of what the virus is doing is triggering it? Mm -hmm. And they've found that actually it's the key stage is, where, is when the virus makes more DNA of itself, so when the virus is copying itself. And that seems to be critical for making more of this beta amyloid and also the tangles that characterize Alzheimer's. So the thing that they're adv advising and suggesting based on an admittedly an in vitro study, they haven't done this in patients yet, but it's been done in the dish, they're saying, well, there are lots of good drugs around, like AC cyclovir, which will actually block the um, copying of the DNA of the virus if you give them. They're very safe drugs. We use them all the time. Um, maybe if we were to do a clinical trial with some, some of these acyclovir agents, we can actually interrupt um, the copying of the DNA and therefore prevent the progression of Alzheimer's in these patients. And they do some simple studies in the dish to show that if you put cells uh, with herpes viruses in them and acyclovir, you produce fewer of the uh, chemicals that are required to make these changes in the brain that would trigger Alzheimer's. So I think probably a clinical trial could be in the offing because it, it is a very common and increasingly common disease.
Okay, let's go straight to the lines then and chat to you. Is it Tolu in Midrand? Hello, Tolu. Hi, Rudy. Mm. Um, I've just got a quick question. I had a bad flu for the past two weeks. It's over now. I'm back at work. But I've got such an uncomfortable thing in my ears. My ears are just blocked. And I don't know what to do. Should I go back to my doctor? Should I take something else? I really don't know what to do. Oh, you have my full sympathy, mm, but you're sure. a classic example of a post-viral infection, I think. Um, what generally happens is that when you have the flu or a very bad upper respiratory virus infection, the virus replicates or grows in the cells that line the airways, so in the nose and throat, and, and can also damage the eustachian tubes, which are the pathways that connect the back of your nose to your middle ear and though they're there so that you can equalize the pressure across your eardrum and when they become blocked you experience unpleasant symptoms in your ears if you go up in an airplane or come down an airplane you can sometimes feel your ears popping if you go up and down hills in a car very fast you feel your ears popping and that's the pressure equalizing down the issue station tubes when the viruses grow there though they actually damage the cells that line the airway and in damaging those cells they damage the natural defense that your airways have against the bacteria that grow naturally on your mucous membranes and so if you damage that line of defense then the bacteria can penetrate and establish a local infection which they wouldn't normally be able to do and they can then produce exaggerated symptoms so some of the catarrhal symptoms or some of the ongoing problems you get after a nasty upper respiratory infection are often due to what's called a bacterial super infection and this is usually a bacterium that's come along after the initial antecedent virus infection Usually they go away of their own accord or the immune system kicks in and gets rid of it. But if you have persistent problems or worsening problems or you feel like you're getting worse again, it could be that these infections are becoming more entrenched or more of a problem. You may need some antibiotics, especially if it's got into your ear and you're getting earache, then that may well be what's happened. So it might be worth tripping back to the doctor and get someone to have a look in your ear, see if you've got a red eardrum or just take your temperature and then maybe give you a short course of antibiotics, some, something like penicillin, which will probably clear it up. Good luck to you, Tulu. Claire in Mulder's Drift, hi. Hi there, Reedy. Mm. I wonder if I could ask Chris a question. Sure, go for it. I'm a teacher and I have a bunch of students who heard about the fact that a grapefruit had been produced that tastes like beef. And I can just imagine the graphic images going through their heads because vegetarians can now have a substitute beef patty and grilling a piece of a grapefruit segment and putting it on a bread roll is just not appetizing. First of all, we want to know, is this a hoax? And secondly, what is it all about? How does it work? Hello, Claire. Well, you've got me on this one because I've not heard of actually making fruit that tastes like an animal. haven't come across that, but it's not entirely impossible or implausible because all that taste and smell is is just chemistry and it's molecules which are docking or linking up with receptors which are a bit like gloves that you put hands into so you have molecules that are a certain shape like your fingers and you have receptors which are like the gloves that match the hands and the fingers and when the two slot together then the receptor fires off a barrage of nerve impulses if it's in your tongue it goes along a certain nerve to your brainstem if it's in your nose it goes along a different nerve into the olfactory or smelling parts of the brain and the brain unites all of these nerve signals together and works out what flavors and what textures you're experiencing in your mouth and up your nose so when you eat something, basically what you're doing is your own chemical analysis of, of what's in that thing. And then you're adding to it the other visceral sensations that go with it, the temperature, the texture, and so on. And that's what we experience as the food. 
So if you change the chemistry of what you put into your mouth, then you can dramatically change the way we experience it. And there's also a very strong visual element to this as well. People have done quite nice studies where if you take a glass of red wine and a glass of white wine, you have a, you, you clearly know what they are and they have a strong taste associated with each one. But if you take white wine and you put some food colouring in it, then people dramatically change their experience of it. And if you blindfold people and get them to try red, red wines and white wines, then they really struggle off and tell the difference between them, surprisingly. Um, obviously, someone who's very experienced at wine tasting won't. So, in other words, mm -hmm. when we experience foods and tastes, there is a huge integration of all of this sensory information. And I think, therefore, if you made fruit that tasted like beef, you could potentially do it by putting some of the proteins that, that makes beef taste like beef into a grapefruit. You probably could make them. You probably would get some of the flavour. Mm -hmm. But the whole context would be wrong, the texture would be wrong, and therefore it, it just would taste wrong. Yeah. And I don't think that people would find it very enjoyable. But I'm certainly very happy to go and have a look and see if there, there is actually any published evidence of people doing this. Okay, thank you very much, Claire. Thanks indeed. Very interesting question. Um, it's, is it Pierre in Bramfontein? Hi. Uh, hello. Hello, everyone. Yeah, I have a question on genetic diversity. How come Africans are, have more genetic diversity than other races? And two, was the, that story of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed uh, baby born of uh, parents of Nigerian descent true? And three, why can't we pick ourselves? Thank you. Why can't we... <laughs> Yeah. Well, you've just tickled me with that question. Let's see what the <laughs> naked scientist has to say. Very quick. Um, well, we've got a handful of questions there. Well, first of all, the genetic diversity one. Pierre's absolutely right that if you look at the number of genes uh, for different characteristics in different populations around the world, you find the greatest gene variations in Africa. And the further from Africa you go in terms of human migration in early out-of-Africa models, the lower those degrees of diversity. And the explanation is that we know that, or we, we're pretty sure, that humans, modern humans, evolved in Africa. And some of the fossils that have turned up in South Africa have helped to tell us a lot about that story, actually. So given that that's where our origins are, it's not really surprising that you're going to find the greatest genetic diversity there, because then as people leave Africa about 100,000 years ago and start to, to colonize other bits of the world, then the environments they find themselves in are going to select for some genes and they're going to be disadvantaged or disadvantageous for other genes. And so certain populations will spring up, partly also because of bottlenecks. There may be populations who will almost die out and then they come back again um, from a small number of founders. And this restricts the gene pool in those populations. So in other words, with time, you get concentrations of genes in different populations around the world, but there's always going to be more in the place where everyone came from in the first place, in other words, Africa, mm -hmm. which is why we think that's true. Um, the second question was about the, the kiddie who was born to the Nigerian parents. The news reports that came out in subsequent tests did seem to suggest this was real, and there are a number of different genes which are involved in pigmentation. The reason that we have different colour coloured skin and eyes and so on is because of more or less pigments which are added to those tissues, the key one being melanin. And melanin is made by a complex series of synthetic pathways, especially in things like the eyes. And 
if you mess up any of those genes or mutate them or they become defective, then the melanization can change in those tissues. So it's not too impossible for this to happen. It's unlikely, but it's not too impossible. In terms of tickling yourself, yeah. we think um, that the reason you can't do this, and no one knows for absolute sure, but we think the reason you can't do this is because the way that your brain works out what is going on outside your body and make sure you're not distracted by st stimuli arising from inside your body is that there's a region of the nervous system which compares what you're doing and therefore what it expects the stimuli to be coming back in with what's actually coming in. And that way, the two things that it expects to be coming in and what's actually coming in are subtracted, and this leaves behind only new things coming in from outside. And part of the excite ex sort of excitement of tickling is the fact that you have no control, you don't know what's coming, you don't know when it's coming. And this makes you pay a lot of attention to it. But when you do it yourself, you know exactly where you're going to tickle yourself. You know how hard you're going yeah, to tickle yourself. Yeah, you know what yeah. you're going to do. So your brain is already anticipating that and deleting it from the information coming in. Wow. So it's less hard to pay attention to it. Wow, wow. You know, I spent all my childhood telling my brother that the doctor said I should not be tickled, otherwise I'll die. And he believed me because he <laughs> was so good at tickling people. And it was the most painful thing ever. So one day I just came <laughs> back and said, Mom took me to the doctor and I, I shouldn't be tickled. And he believed me right until our teens. And he said, I've got a lot oh, to pay go. for. There's Ooh. a gentleman in... Um Swede, Switzerland, and he's yeah. called Olaf Blanke, and he works on schizophrenia. Yeah. And they have found a region of the brain which is at the junction between the occipital lobe at the back and the parietal lobe, which is across the sort of middle part of the brain. And in that area is a region which does this subtraction of what you should be experiencing and what you're creating in your inside yourself. And if you deactivate this region, then, or you look in people who have schizophrenia, it's possible you'll find problem in this area that is probably where you create hallucinations if you ha don't have this area working properly. So there, there is actually a defined brain area which is probably involved in doing this, this appropriate comparison job. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right, uh, let's go to Mark. Mark in the West Rand. Good morning. Hi, Ree. Mm. Hi, Chris. I hope you can help me with this one. Um, it's sort of strange also to do with sensations. When I picture my kids, I've got two daughters, when I picture them getting hurt, I tell them, don't go run outside, don't fall, don't scrape your knee, or I picture them getting a paper cut or cutting themselves. I experience a strange sensation running down my back or my spine or even half experience a sensation on my knee when I when I imagining them getting hurt. Why does this happen? Hi, Mark, How I have that happen? too. Yeah, I, I have a similar thing. When my daughter fell over and bruised her knees and there was little cuts on her knees when she was little, um, I, I almost felt I could feel my own knees smarting and I felt really s sort of sad and painful for her. Scientists have studied this in some detail now. There's a population of nerve cells in the brain which are called mirror neurons and they appear to do exactly what they say on the tin. They mirror the behavior or the uh, sensations being experienced by others. So when you see someone sort of having a certain experience, you project their experience onto these neurons and this enables you to use your own body to feel were you in their situation, what would they be feeling? And this is how we empathize with people. It's also very useful in terms of motor movements as well because um, in some circumstances it's very useful to be able to watch what someone's doing and then put yourself in their metaphorical shoes to work out what you would do in that circumstance because you could learn something that way. And there was a really nice study which came out in Nature Neuroscience around the time when the Olympics were on. 
and they were looking at basketballers. And what they did was to get three groups of people. They got basketball pros, they got basketball coaches, and they got members of the public who hated basketball. Mm. <laughs> and they got them to watch footage of players who were just about to throw the ball into the basket. So they would, literally the ball was just leaving the hand of the thrower. And they froze the image there, and they asked the three different groups to predict whether or not the ball would go into the basket on each occasion. And they also measured the activity in the muscles of the hands of these people. And what they found is that the pros got it right 70% of the time. The coaches and the members of the public who hated basketball were only right a third of the time. So the coaches were no better than general public. And they found that what was happening is in the pros, the muscles in the hand that they would have thrown with, even though they were sitting watching a television, were becoming more active. And it turns out that the pro throwers were mapping the postures of the people they were watching on the screen onto their own body, onto these mirror neurons in their motor parts of their brain, and then using their own personal experiences of how they would have thrown the ball into, in those circumstances to work out where the ball would go and then work out whether it would go into the basket. So this is a really neat way of, of I guess, learning from other what other people are doing and mapping it onto your own experience mm -hmm. and empathising. So the reason you feel pain when your daughter feels pain is because you're mapping her experience oh. onto your own nervous system and thinking, what would happen if I were in that I position? Wouldn't. And then you get nervous because you think, oh, that must be awful. Um, and then you feel these other visceral symptoms that make you want to reach out and, and give her a kiss. Oh, that's lovely. Okay, tell me about this macroalgae that is... Uh, affecting corals well one of the things that we're very worried about is that all around the world coral reefs are in decline and the question is why are they in decline and why don't they recover when the problem if it's a big storm or some water pollution or something damages the coral why do they recover so poorly and there's a paper in the journal pnas this week which caught my eye it's by a guy with a lovely name douglas rasher who's at the georgia institute of technology and what he and his colleagues did was to take eight different species of seaweed, otherwise known as macroalgae, and three different species of coral. And they were just testing to see what would happen if you put seaweed next to coral. And it turns out that seaweed make chemicals called terpenes, which are highly toxic to corals. Uh, the way they did this was to literally plant the seaweed next door to the coral and see what the coral did. And in all cases, or 80% of the time, the amount of photosynthesis, in other words, capturing energy from the sun that the coral did, went down. Um, in some cases, the coral actually died. And in many cases, it bleached. In other words, it lost the photosynthetic algae that it would normally use to feed the coral. And when they said, well, is this because just th there's a proximity effect, there's seaweed blanketing the coral, maybe it doesn't like that. They made some plastic models of the corals, uh, and the, sorry, some plastic models of the seaweed, and the coral was just fine. So there was obviously something coming out of the seaweed. They made some extracts, and they found that these very lipid or oil-loving chemicals, terpenes, are secreted by the seaweeds, probably as a means of defending themselves, but it gets onto the coral, and it damages the coral. And the reason they're arguing that reefs recover so badly is when the reef is healthy, there are lots of fish there that are herbivorous. They eat seaweed. So this keeps the seaweed in check so that it doesn't produce these chemicals that damage the coral. If you damage the reef, you lose those fish. This enables these plants to grow. And once they're entrenched and they're, they've grown a lot, because the fish aren't there to eat them because the reef is damaged, they keep damaging the reef so the reef doesn't recover and therefore the whole thing becomes a seaweedy mess. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much, Chris. As always, we love having you on the show and uh, we're going to podcast 
this as always and uh, have a lovely weekend. We'll chat next week. And you. Thanks for having me, Reedy. Bye. Thanks, everybody. See you Bye, next Chris. time. Bye-bye. Bye, Dr. Christopher Smith. <laughs> Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.